So we've been highlighting this theme in Matthew, this fancy word that I keep using, recapitulation. That Matthew tells the story of Jesus in such a way that Jesus, he points out how Jesus fulfills all kinds of figures and characters from the Old Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, Jesus fulfills the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, where Moses gave the law, the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus. That means that Jesus comes to explain what the law always meant and to give grace as his disciples to be able to fulfill the law. In those following chapters, Jesus goes around himself like the temple, making it possible for people who couldn't draw near to worship God, making it possible for them to be able to do so by healing them, by casting out demons. And he reverses the 10 tests of Israel, the ways in which they put God to the test in the wilderness by blessing people uh, instead of bringing judgment on them. In the passages that we're going to cover tonight, I think an overall theme is that of Jesus giving rest. So Jesus is like Joshua, who sends his disciples into the promised land to conquer it, but not conquer it with the sword, but by conquering it with blessing, just like Jesus has been giving blessing. And Jesus here is also like David, who conquered all the foes of Israel, and the scripture says gave rest to them. All right. So it continue. Matthew continues to tell the Old Testament story. And I'll just give you a preview. We're not going to do it next week, but in two weeks, um, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus acts as Solomon giving parables because Solomon gave lots of parables and Jesus does the same thing. Now, I know this is a lot of scripture and it's been challenging for me, not preaching seven verses, but preaching however many verses this was. But I think there's real value to the way we're approaching it. Uh, The the Bible scholar Jonathan Pennington says that if you back up from Scripture and sort of look at large sections of it, especially in the Gospels, it's kind of like crop circles. Everybody know what I'm talking about? The the circles that people put or maybe aliens put in, in, you know, fields of corn, that when you see them from the air, uh, you can see the patterns in them. And if you back up from these scriptures and look, you begin to discern overall patterns that Matthew is trying to communicate. And that's what I want to draw our attention to tonight is really some big things, some large strokes that Matthew is sketching in these passages. Of course, we should study the individual passages. They're rich. But I want to look at the big picture tonight. So the general things that I would point out that Matthew is doing here is, one, he gives Jesus teaching on mission. And Jesus' teaching on mission is that the church is always on mission, extending his mission. And he has a lot to say about that mission. Then Jesus brings a sword. And I would say that he, in these sections, brings a sword and divides between the humble and the hungry who really want to learn from him and the proud and resistant who are standing against him. I don't know if you noticed, but some of the hardest things Jesus ever says are in these chapters. But I would also suggest some of the most comforting things Jesus says are in these chapters. Why is that? Because he's identifying two crowds. He's calling two different crowds and treating them differently and addressing them differently. And in particular, all of these passages, and in the the Gospel of Matthew in general, Jesus is the prophet of the people of God preparing them for a judgment that's coming. He doesn't want them to be judged. He doesn't want them to suffer punishment. But he knows that judgment is coming, and he's trying to prepare his people for that. And the particular judgment that's coming in Jesus' day is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when the Romans, because of continual Jewish rebellion 
put down the temple, destroy it, burn it to the ground, kill the priests. Jesus doesn't want his people to suffer that judgment. And much of what he has to say is inviting them to escape that judgment that is to come. So what I want to do tonight is pull out those three big themes that I mentioned, three big themes, and uh, see what, what big picture that Matthew is trying, trying to sketch for us. So the first one is what Jesus has to say about mission, and that comes largely in chapters 10. And I'll start this by mentioning at least two people this week sent me a story in the Wall Street Journal about uh, a survey of values and how, what values people find important. How many people have read about this? It was a big survey they conducted like every 25 years. And what they found is that 25 years ago, uh, people valued things like faith, patriotism, hard work. And that the people that say they value those things has dropped precipitously in the last 25 years. They did notice there was an increase in what people value, and that is in money. So it's sort of a grim statistic, all right? I want to suggest that Jesus begins this section on mission with a grim statistic as well. He says, guys, there's a whole lot of harvest and only a few hands to harvest it. We've got a problem. And I would suggest that this is really appropriate for us. All right. We sure there's there's many ways in which faith is declining in America. I don't think Jesus freaks out. I think these verses speak specifically to what he would say to us and what he would do. He says, guys, the harvest is huge. There needs to be workers. What's his answer? He says, we need workers. We need I would suggest for us, we need pastors. We need future pastors. I need to have somebody take over and more. We want to plant churches. We need late people that are not ordained to be workers. So how does Jesus address this? Well, there's four things that he says here. There's four things that, he, that, I, that he, he calls attention to. And the first one is this. The scripture says that Jesus saw the crowds harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. The heart of mission is the heart of Jesus in compassion for people. We know that Jesus doesn't like sin, but he doesn't like sin, I think, primarily because it destroys people's lives. And when he looks at people, he doesn't look and go, oh, that's just disgusting and terrible. I'm mad. He looks and he has compassion. And the heart of mission, every missionary that's ever been sent, and we're all, by the way, all Christians are called to be missionaries. The heart of mission is not our heart, but it's his heart. It's his heart for those who are harassed and helpless. He wants to help. So that's the first thing he draws attention to in this section. And it's unfortunate because I think the church, perhaps well-meaning, perhaps not, has often made it worse for harassed people. They've overladen people with guilt. They've overladen people uh, with, with rules and scrupulosity. And Jesus comes along and he wants to bring help. Unfortunately, sometimes it is the church that is not given grace to people, but is given more harassment. And Jesus wants to bring his compassion. The second thing is he says, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest. He doesn't say, well, raise some funds. He doesn't say, you know, you should study the problem and get some people together. He says, you need to pray. The heart of mission is the heart of Jesus. And what he says we need to do about mission, and our country needs missions as much as any country in the world, is to pray for workers. And that's, by the way, why we pray at church at the end. We pray because that is one of the essential keys to what God has called us to do. And I would just suggest that when a church ceases to pray, her mission dies. 
So Jesus says, pray. Another thing Jesus points out in all of this is gifts. Later on, he gives, he gives authority to his disciples to go and to do all the same things that he has done. Notice this authority is always connected to the mission. At the end of Matthew, he will commission the disciples. And he says, all authority has been given to me. He gives gifts to his people, the gift of authority. And the gift to go and do what he does, to continue what he's been doing. To preach the kingdom, to teach, to deliver people, to heal people, to use all the gifts of the people of God to bless people and bring the kingdom of God to people. And finally, the fourth thing that I would suggest, he lists the 12 disciples. And of course, he lists that 12 because 12 is, it's, it's the new Israel, right? It's the people of God. It's the fellowship of the people of God. And I'll just point out one little detail of that list. It's one of my favorite details. It is you have a guy on the last, towards the end, named Simon the Zealot. A zealot would have been somebody who was like, we are going to take up arms and we are going to kick Rome out. And then you have Matthew, a tax collector. You could not have had two guys who were further from one another politically, dispositionally, personality-wise, and Jesus brings them together in the fellowship of his disciples who are on mission. And that's what the church is called to be. Not a group of people who are all like-minded in all kinds of ways, but a group of people who, are all, who have all said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn to live the way this guy's teaching people to live. And he will unite all the things that divide in discipleship to him. Amen? Amen. So he gives the church his heart. He gives the church prayer. He gives the church gifts. And he gives the church the fellowship of the people of God. And that's what we're called to be. A group of people that, man, how did you guys get together? Well, we've been put together in Jesus Christ. He goes on to give some instructions about the mission to the disciples. He says, listen, don't do it for money. Uh, don't, don't do it as pro- for profit. Don't turn this into a business. It's not that. He says you should look for worthy people. And I want to suggest what he means by worthy people is receptive people. People who say, Jesus, I'd like to hear more about what you have to say. He says those are the kind of people you need to look for. And he even says you need to test people for their hospitality. You need to find those people who say, we want to hear more from you. Come and stay with us. Those are the kinds of people that you need to stay with and be stable with. So Jesus says, look for hospitality. And then he gives expectations, what they should expect. And notice Jesus does not say, you are going to go, and I mean, you're going to have huge crowds, and you're going to have huge followings, and there's going to be all kinds of people. What does he say? He says, you're going to get a lot of resistance. You're going to get a lot of people that don't follow you. that are not interested in what you have to say. And he gives them something to be like. He says, you are to be like sheep. Sheep who are shrewd, cunning, smart like a serpent, but innocent as doves. Well, why not a different animal? Like, why not a lion or an eagle? That would be really cool. He says, sheep. Why sheep? I think it's because he's the lamb of God. And how does he conquer? He conquers by letting sin do its worst to him. He conquers by becoming a victim. And he's really shrewd because that undoes sin and it undoes Satan. And I think he calls us to be sheep who are like serpents, shrewd as serpents, because we're called to extend his mission in the same way he does. If you pay attention to the book of Acts, it is not because the church gets together and strategizes and does research and makes these plans. It's because they get opposed. 
They get persecuted in Jerusalem and they get scattered. It's almost as if the way the church grows is by being opposed, is by being resisted. So Jesus says, guys, expect opposition, expect resistance. It's not a sign of failure. In fact, I think Jesus would almost say trouble, suffering, problems are the water disciples swim in. Because that's the water he has swum in. He has also had that kind of opposition. And the church and we probably need to worry when we don't see that kind of opposition, right? We should, we should wonder. It should make us concerned. Then he talks about whom they are to fear. Because, guys, you're going to be thrown before. You're going to be brought before kings. You're going to be thrown in jail. And you, you should expect this opposition. The scriptures repeatedly say that we should not fear people. And I don't know if you run into this, but when I read this, I think, well, he says you should fear the one who can. Uh, don't fear the people that can kill you. Fear the people that can, the one who can throw you into hell. Well, who is that? It's not Satan. The scriptures never tell us to fear Satan. The scriptures may tell us to be aware of him and of, and of his schemes, but it never tells us to fear Satan. We're to fear God. And, of course, we're to fear him as one Our fear is to be tempered with the knowledge that he is kind, that he is generous. But our great desire should be to please him and to honor him. And then finally, he mentions the sword. I have come to bring a sword. And again, this makes me think of Joshua. It makes me think of David. And he says, I come to divide father from son. He brings all these divisions. And he's speaking hyperbolically. I don't think it's because he wants to generate these. I think it's because he wants to reveal loyalties. If my loyalty to my family is higher than my loyalty to God or competes with my loyalty to God, Jesus says, that needs to be exposed. I've come to call people to loyalty and allegiance to me. That's what faith in Jesus is, is allegiance to him. And he says, it's going to happen that if you, are, you give allegiance to me, it will threaten your family loyalty sometimes. Of course, in our culture, we don't have cultures that are as dependent on family and connected as family as those first century cultures. But Jesus makes it clear uh, that this is going to be an issue for his disciples. And then finally, he, he ends this section on mission with rewards. And I just want to point out how absolutely ridiculously generous the gospel is and God is. All right, notice what he says is if you give a cup of cold water to one of the least of these my workers... You will, you will receive a reward. We were talking about this with my family when we were reading through this this past Sunday. And he says, if you receive a prophet, you will receive a prophet's reward. Did you, and it took me a while to really get a hold of what he's saying. He's saying, if you show hospitality to a prophet, you will be rewarded as if you did the work that he did. That's astounding generosity by God. He's not asking for extraordinary things. He's calling for hospitality to the people of God. Isn't that amazing? And it speaks to the, the power of hospitality. That hospitality is not just some uh, generic virtue, but it is the very virtue of God himself. And we're called to extend that hospitality one to another. And I think we do it almost most importantly here when we gather and we welcome one another and we receive one another. But it also comes in our homes. So that's the section on mission. The next thing I want to address is how Jesus has all these hard things to say. Again, these are some of Jesus' hardest, most confusing words. Remember what I said at the beginning, that much of Jesus' ministry was focused on warning his people 
about the coming judgment that would happen in 70 AD when his people would be judged for resisting him, for not bearing the fruit that he had called them to repent. We get that first example where Jesus says, you're like children in a market. You're not satisfied. John came and he was hardcore and hellfire and brimstone and austere, and he didn't receive him. I came and I went to parties and I ate and I drank and I feasted, and you didn't receive me. You didn't, you're, you're not satisfied with anything that, that God offers to you, the good cop or bad cop. Any approach that God has to call you to repentance. Now, John and Jesus were certainly interesting to people, right? Great crowds followed them. But Jesus points out that the great crowds that followed him, many of them didn't repent. They didn't change. They didn't respond to the gracious, merciful kindness that Jesus was bringing. They remained at a distance from him. Some opposed him. It's the Bible's continual way of saying that religious crowds are not to be trusted. What Jesus is looking for is the individuals and the people in those crowds who will change, who will hear his message, who will repent, who will receive what he has to say. I want you to consider that in the Gospels, we see a generation and a group of people that has had the greatest opportunity of any people in the history of the world. We have the Gospel presented to us. They had the Son of God himself in person. And the greatest offense is to resist the gospel and resist the message of goodness that Jesus has to give. So Jesus mentions these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Chorazin and Bethsaida were just down the road, four or five miles, very close. He spent a lot of time in those cities. Capernaum is the city that was his home base, that Jesus does many, many miracles. It says that he did the most miracles in that city. And you kind of, you might imagine it this way. It says that you, will you ascend to heaven? You might imagine the civic pride of Capernaum. Okay, we have welcome to the horse capital of the world. Well, imagine the sign outside Capernaum, welcome to Capernaum, home of Jesus the wonder worker. (laughs) I think there's something like that going on. But what Jesus has to say to them, you're interested in me, you're entertained by me, you, you like the things that I'm doing for you, but you haven't changed. And he says, it's going to be tougher for you on the day of Sodom or on the day of judgment for Sodom, for you than for Sodom. Excuse me. They didn't change. Notice this. You have to pay attention to when Jesus speaks harshly. Jesus has the harshest things to say, and he talks the most about hell in context of religious people who've had a lot of exposure to him. That's where he does not mention those harsh things to new crowds or to people who are harassed and helpless. He has that to say to those religious crowds who are exposed to them, but don't ultimately receive the message that he has for them. I want to point out, too, that Jesus' harsh words, he has very hard things to say to them. His harsh words are to elicit repentance from them. They're not because he delights in being harsh. They're because he wants them to see their situation and change and receive what he has to say. Jesus does not scold broken down people. He doesn't bring those harsh words against people who are poor of spirit, who are at the end of their rope. He, as the old saw says, afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. That's what the gospel is meant to do. One of the main figures, the main groups that pop up in this section that resist him are the Pharisees. And they're concerned with their own 
understanding of the law. They're concerned with control, making sure people follow their rules. They don't really get the Sabbath. And Jesus isn't breaking the Sabbath. I think this is so important to get. Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath by letting his disciples pick grain or by healing the guy in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's fulfilling the Sabbath. Do you want to know how to fulfill the Sabbath? Look at what Jesus does on the Sabbath. He heals people. He brings refreshment to his disciples. That's how you fulfill the Sabbath. They're more concerned about their interpretation of the Sabbath than this is the remarkable thing. A man whose crippled hand has probably kept him from being able to work for his family suddenly being restored to health. They can't get excited about this guy being well. They're so concerned about their reputation and whether people are following their interpretations of the Sabbath. Jesus makes it clear that it's biblical to do good things on the Sabbath. That that's one of the ways you fulfill the Sabbath. And we come to this passage that's probably maybe this or the thing about the seven demons that's one of the hardest. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'll just say a few brief things about this. Notice that he says this about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in a context where he has healed. And the Pharisees say, oh, well, he's doing it with demonic power. What's their motive? I mean, we know that in places in the Gospels, we're told that they were envious of Jesus. Out of envy for Jesus, they're trying to get people to disbelieve in Jesus by attributing to Jesus demonic influence. That's the context in which Jesus mentions this thing about uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit not being forgiven. So I know a lot of people worry about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Like, have I accidentally done that? Have I accidentally said something that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? You can't accidentally blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And it's true that if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is wanting to stand against the work of the gospel. And wanting to get people not to believe this message. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And again, I believe Jesus is giving this harsh word to them. Why? So they'll repent. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in their case was standing against Jesus in his ministry... And then standing against the ministry of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit in the church after that. He rose from the dead. And they continue to stand against him. So it is persistently resisting the message of the gospel that comes through his people. That is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, make a tree good and the fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and the fruit will be bad. He asks them, what kind of tree are you? Actually, he doesn't ask. He says, guys, what's coming out of your mouth makes it clear what kind of tree you are. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's clear what kind of tree you are. And Jesus is once again inviting them to be changed. Make the tree good. How do you make the tree good? By repenting. By listening to what I have to say and receiving what I have to say. By becoming a student of mine and following me in my kingdom. Jesus is very interested in what comes out. Not just the thing that comes out of our hearts, the words that come out of our mouths, but what that reveals about what we treasure. And Jesus is calling the Pharisees to repent from treasuring the praise of people, repent from treasuring their own religious reputation, and to learn to treasure something that's lasting. Amen? Finally, they demand a sign. And I'll put it this way. 
demanding a sign is a bad sign. If you demand a sign, it's not a sign that you're open, that you want to learn, that, you're, uh, that you really do want to find the truth. It's often a sign uh, that you require, you demand. It's putting God to the test. And in the context of this, Jesus says, and I don't know if you noticed, he says three times something greater than is here. Did everybody notice that? The first one is something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here, and uh, it's me. And then he says something greater than Jonah is here. And again, he's referring to himself. And finally, he says something greater than Solomon is here. Now, there's a couple different ways you could take it. The temple was associated with the priests. Jonah's a prophet. And Solomon's a great king. So it's a way of summarizing those great offices of Israel. It's also a way of saying the whole Old Testament summed up, right? The prophets uh, uh, and the Old Testament or the, the priestly writings. He calls that generation an adulterous generation. He calls that, that group of people a brood of vipers. That should open up our biblical imagination and take us all the way back to the beginning when a serpent thwarted what God was doing. And God said, listen, there's going to be warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He's telling these Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of Israel, you're actually the seed of the serpent. Because you're opposing what God is doing. Again, he doesn't delight in this. He's calling them to repentance. And let, me, let me close this section by just discussing that last little parable he gives. He says, you know, there's a guy, he, he gets... He's got a demon. He gets exercised of that demon, and he's all put together. He's like, oh, man, it's great. Life's good. It's like a house that's all cleaned up. But a house is for habitation. A house is to be lived in. And he doesn't invite me in to come and live with him. And as a consequence, his life will be occupied. It will be inhabited. But it's because that demon goes and finds seven demons worse than him to occupy that life. What is Jesus talking about here? I think he's talking about that generation. They had the blessing of Jesus' ministry in their midst. I think he's talking about those cities. They had the blessing of Jesus' miracles in their midst and his teaching. And he exercised those towns, yet they didn't invite him in. They didn't say, come and inhabit this house and show us how to live. I think he's talking about the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple and he calls the temple leadership to repent and they don't repent. And what happens? 70 AD, that house is destroyed. And lastly, I think this applies a whole lot to Western civilization. You know, Christianity has leavened the history of of our culture going all the way back to the Greeks into modern times. But I don't think our culture and the cultures of Europe have always embraced his teachings. And the last century sure does look like a huge demonic possession to me. We have two world wars. We have millions killed by their governments. I think that's because many people haven't received his teachings. All right, let me close with, I think, the most important part. As I said, these are some of the harshest words that Jesus has to say. But I want to suggest that the most comforting words that Jesus has to say are in this section. And I want to highlight these words. Jesus has comforting things to say to little people who know they're little people who know they don't know much. When Jesus is opposed, he's like, okay, bye. I'm leaving. I think anybody else who knew they were right would have done something to prove they were right. Jesus just leaves because he's interested in those who are hungry, who are thirsty. He doesn't need to rage and prove himself to those people. 
It says that he doesn't break bruised reeds. People who are at the end of their rope. People who are haggard. He doesn't put out smoldering wicks. He doesn't come along and say, get with it. But he comes in wisdom and gentleness and kindness. He hides things from intellectual experts who know it all. And he shows himself to people who know they don't know much and know they need help. Jesus makes it clear that the knowledge of God is not attained by human power. You can't wrestle knowledge of God from God. And all through the Gospel of Matthew so far, I hope you've noticed, I hope it stood out to you that he's interested in unpromising people. He's interested in, as I said, little people. He heals the lonely, the ostracized, the worn out, the broken down. He desires mercy and not extreme religious scrupulosity that's sort of preoccupied with my own status. It's the poor in the spirit, in the grieving, the worn down that Jesus is interested in and that he goes to. He's interested in the harassed, the humble, the haggard, and he gives those people his gracious help. That's what Jesus comes to give. So he says in the most, I think, the most important section, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does Jesus say to people who are heavily burdened? Take my yoke. And that doesn't sound helpful. Right? Take another burden. Well, why is it helpful? I think it's because of the nature of the teacher who invites you to have that yoke. Jesus says, I'm meek and lowly of heart. I'm not a harsh taskmaster. I'm not hard to please. I want to help. And if you want to take my yoke on you, I'm there to help you. He's not stern and harsh. He's wise and helpful. He can be challenging. It's not that he's not challenging, but he's there to help. That is why the yoke of Jesus is easy, because he, the meek and lowly one, is there to help. So if you're not finding rest, try a different yoke. Try a different teacher. Invite the meek and lowly one who looks at the crowds and has compassion on them. Try him as your teacher and as your master. I think the yoke is the Sermon on the Mount. That's his teachings, his teachings on how to live. That's his yoke. And it's, this is what's so spectacular about the scripture. It's listening to his word and it's seeing what Jesus does that creates faith. It's listening to his words as we we have them in scripture and seeing what he does as we have it in scripture. And it instills faith. It's like, he is wise. He is good. He is gentle to humble people that know they have great need. So look at his words, look at his deeds, and take him as your personal teacher. Amen? Well, we're going to come to communion. And before we do, we're going to sing Psalm 88.